It still feels a little unusual. Thank you for your patience. I think we, uh, things have um, gone a lot smoother this morning in terms of arriving and checking in. And so thanks uh, for working with us on those things. We're going to continue in our series in First Samuel. Uh, we're up to chapter 12, the very bit which you've just heard uh, read. And let me open up in prayer as we seek God's help. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Sanctify us in your truth. May your spirit be at work in every single one of us, both here and online, to form us more into the image of your Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think before when Samuel made a reference to jobs, I thought he's tied it in nicely. And I was wondering, who's got the most exciting job here? I'm not going to get everyone to take a poll or things like that. But I was thinking about it. Every single job, even the most exciting, funnest job you can ever think of, has probably got its dull moments that don't really get spoken of. When I signed up for ministry, I never thought that I would be spending days writing paperwork, forms and signs for a pandemic. Now, I don't know what your dream job is, but I'm sure if you force your mind to think through it, there probably are some behind-the-scenes parts of it that are just a thorough drudge and a bore. When I tried to think of what would be the funnest ever job, I thought, working on Mythbusters, just blowing up stuff. Even though I'm sure there are tasks behind the scenes that I'm both incapable of doing and may not be all that fun. But what you'll notice in your job, you've got things you love doing, things you do because they're part of the role. And you'll discover that your enthusiasm and your drive probably fluctuates depending on which camp that particular task you're doing fits in. The things you love, you kind of got a lot more drive and you're really gung-ho, but the things you don't like, you might not work at your highest levels of productivity. Or you could say in a very simple manner, your attitude and your desires affect your actions, the way you do things. And that can be a problem for us as Christians. Because sometimes the Christian life is quite easy, quite exciting. But other times, it's just tough and difficult. Now, where we've come to so far in 1 Samuel, we've seen a whole lot of highs and lows. We've seen morally bankrupt priests, but then we've also seen some great godly people like Hannah and Samuel. You go from a time where it was pretty much never hearing a word from God at all, And then God raises up a prophet in Samuel and every word that comes out of his mouth comes to pass. You go from a point where they were trusting in idols and objects and bringing even out the ark in that capacity to turning to God and repenting of that sin. Then eventually they've asked for a king and we've even been reminded again in today's reading, you ask for a king when the Lord was your king already. We weren't surprised about the request. Deuteronomy chapter 17 told us that when they entered the land, they would ask for a king like all of the other nations. And Deuteronomy 17 goes on to talk about the qualifications and what that king that you ask for should and shouldn't do. 
But when they ask for a king like the nations, it's almost like they say, we want a king upon whom all of our hope and our security will rest upon, as though they were insecure without hope if they didn't have this king. All during a time when they had the ultimate king, the Lord God of Israel. And last week we saw this king introduced. This tall, handsome, wealthy man. And as he's announced to the people, it was met with great cheers from almost everybody. And as far as our journey through 1 Samuel, the focus will gradually start to shift away from Samuel, who's been sort of forthright for a while, as he fades into the background and we see Saul and the kingdom start to take prominence. But we have here what is often titled as Samuel's farewell speech. Not the last thing he said, not the last time we see him, where he speaks and addresses things regarding himself, regarding God, regarding the nation of Israel, regarding sin and grace. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 5 where we see Samuel on trial. Our second section, we'll see Israel on trial in verses 6 to 18. And then in verses 19 to 25, grace for the guilty. So firstly, verses 1 to 5, Samuel on trial. Now it's a sad thing that we see everywhere in life. We see business leaders, we see church leaders, we see prominent Christians who don't finish well. You know how it is when some major moral failure brings what was a beforehand a great lasting legacy to nothing. And all of a sudden, everything that had been achieved and praised beforehand is all of a sudden discredited and overshadowed by this final way in which they ended. Now, as Christians, we should all long for the day when we see our Saviour face to face and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But we also don't want to leave a trail of failures and unfaithfulness behind as people remember us on this world. Now Samuel's presented as someone who lived well, who led well, and who finished well. He had the honour and respect of all of the people. He was their prophet. He was their judge. He was sort of like their quasi-priest. He's never specifically called that, but he carries out many priestly functions. And he's the one who established and gave the nation the monarchy that they were looking for. But he was also smart enough to realise that his life and his value is more than just the sum of a list of achievements. In his farewell address, he actually wants to say, if there's anything I've done wrong, I actually want to get it right. I want to rectify that. I want to make it up. Can you imagine any corporate CEO or a politician at the end of their term saying, Has anyone, have I done anything wrong to anyone? No, I want to repay it in some way. And it's not a tokenistic gesture on behalf of Samuel. Like he calls the Lord God as his witness, who knows even the very heart of Samuel. In verse 3 he says, Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whom has the hand, or whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? 
Testify against me and I will restore it to you. No one had a thing against him. I imagine in our self-entitled cultures, there's going to be someone who's just got a whole big list of things just because they didn't get everything the way that they wanted. But all of Israel who were gathered there said, no, you didn't do anything like that toward us. How satisfying would that be? To know that the people that you have led have absolutely no grievance in the way in which you have dealt with them and the way in which you have led. It was testified both before the Lord and before the anointed king Saul. I know it's not a like for like, it's not old king, new king. Samuel wasn't a king, but he was effectively the primary leader in Israel, handing over to a new primary leader in Israel. He's kind of setting the bar high, isn't it? Imagine that. You're becoming the the king of the nation, the primary leader of the nation, and you've just seen that the whole nation has got no concerns whatsoever with the guy who came before you. Now, we know what we're like as humans. When one leader goes out, another one comes in. We naturally make comparisons. We remember what the one beforehand did better and what the new one did better or worse or whatever it is. I'm sure secretly some of you had some when I arrived and thought, oh, well, Owen did this better or Steve did this better. We just, we do that. But for Samuel, he led well. It was confirmed by all. He lived well. He's willing to repay absolutely anybody in any way. Now, while this is just Samuel, someone who will fade into the background and come chapter 25, he'll pass away. Israel, on the other hand, they're going to be around for a while. So now it's the nation of Israel who's on trial in verses 6 to 18. No one's got a negative word against Samuel. He served faithfully. In verse 7, Samuel reminds about the righteous deeds of the Lord that he worked for them, for the people. So they've all recognised that Samuel has done right by them, that the Lord has done the right thing by them. Now the question turns, how have the people responded to the Lord? Samuel doesn't just address the current generation. In fact, he goes all the way back to Egypt. And it's not because he's a history buff and he just wanted a chance to to show off his knowledge. But we see that throughout the Old Testament. This is the, the primary event that keeps getting referred back to. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Because it's such a significant identifying event in terms of defining who God is and who his people are, who they are. But it's also a reminder looking back, lest that the current generation make the same mistakes as those who have gone before them. He points them back to Egypt. Remember, you were slaves to the biggest power, the biggest nation in the world. You cried out before the Lord. He heard your prayers and he delivered you. He rescued you. Not only did he make you free, he made you his own possession to dwell among you, to enjoy the blessing of being underneath his rule as your king. Now, there's a bit of a contrast to the current situation where the people 
requested and appointed a king. Samuel reminds them, God, God took the initiative. He called Moses and Aaron to lead you out of Egypt. But sadly, from that glorious deliverance, there's been a constant cycle in the way people have responded to the Lord. They forget the Lord. They go back to the ways of the surrounding nations, to idolatry and to their gods. They punish, they complain, they cry out to the Lord. He saves them, they're comfortable, they're blessed, and goes on and on again. And the most recent part of that cycle is as they become under oppression of foreign nations, they cry out for the Lord, give us a king. And Samuel's ordered to obey the voice of the people and give them what they wanted. And we saw last week the way in which God orchestrated all of that to come together. And now where they sit, verse 13, Behold the king you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold the Lord has set a king over you. You ask for it, you've got it. And even though they've been told how sinful they are in doing that, having a king in and of itself doesn't have to be a curse. doesn't have to be a bad thing for them. In fact, both the people and the way in which they respond will have a choice between this being a blessing or this being a curse. Both the people and the king need to think, how are we going to respond to God in this new situation? And Samuel says, here's your two options, verses 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So if the people and the king serve the Lord with all of their heart, walk in humble obedience, it's going to be good. There will be blessing. No surprise there. That's the way it's been from, from day dot. To live under the Lord as your king, serving him, obeying him, enjoying him, there is, there is goodness and blessing. Goodness, life and blessing and all come from the God who gives and created each of those things. On the other hand, if you don't obey the Lord, the Lord will be against you and your king. Or some translations might say, or you and your fathers. That's a significant challenge put to the people. How's it going to be? Blessing or cursing? And Samuel wants to emphasise how important this is and the power of this God whom they are called to respond to by giving them a significant sign. He says, isn't it wheat harvest? For them, typically June, so May to June, a time that was not known for a lot of rain. He says, I'm going to ask the Lord and he's going to send rain and thunder as a sign of how wicked it is that you have asked for a king. And as the Lord sends rain and thunder. The people fear the Lord, but they also fear Samuel because they realize Samuel's the one who's called upon the Lord and caused all these things to happen before their eyes. But in addition to that, they're convicted of their sin. They know that God has acted rightly towards them. They know that they have acted wickedly towards God. 
If anything, they probably wonder how they have any hope before a righteous God. So let's look at grace of the guilty, verses 12 to, sorry, 9 to 25. Having seen the close connection between Samuel and God in the bringing of the thunder and the rain, they turn to Samuel and say, you pray for us. It's like they think, you seem to have some special sort of connection with God, say, how about you pray for us? We know we've offended him. How about you pray on our behalf? He listens to you. But it's interesting though, after they've been challenged to serve the Lord and serve the Lord alone, they ask Samuel, pray for us, your servants. Now one point is abundantly clear. They're aware of their sin and they know they deserve death. Verse 19, all the people said, pray for your servants and to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They're not saying we've had a momentary lapse, we've made a little once-off whoopsie, we've asked for a king, we know we shouldn't have when the Lord was our king. They say, we've got lots of sins. We sin all the time and we've added to all of that by asking for a king. So Samuel, pray for us that we won't die. You might think, die? That's a bit harsh. But again, this is how it's always been. Look back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. You can eat whatever you like, but don't eat from this tree or you will die. It's the same thing we see in the Gospel. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's even highlighted in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 19 to 20, where it says, If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So their fear was justified. Turn from God leads to death. But we have a God who graciously saves. Alongside their fear and their recognition of their sin and their wickedness and God's right to punish them, Samuel says these beautiful words, fear not. You see it over 80 times in the Old Testament, that phrase, fear not. Because they recognise, man, we should fear. We've sinned against the perfect and holy God. Samuel says, fear not. It's not because God doesn't care about sin. He's like, no worries. It's all sweet. We don't mind. We all do little whoopsies every now and then. Samuel actually agrees with the people. Yes, your sin is great. Let's know tonight. We're not denying that your sin isn't great. Your sin is great. But turn to the Lord. Turn to the God who redeems, who rescues who saves the one you remember back from Egypt, who, who redeemed you out of slavery in Egypt. Why should they fear when the sin is great? Well, the next verse tells us, for or because this is the reason, the Lord will not forsake his people, 
for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. I think there's something in those words that we probably all need to hear every day. It pleased the Lord to make them his people. Who is Samuel saying it pleased the Lord to make them his people? The same people who have just said, our sin is great. Samuel has confirmed their sin is great. But the Lord who knew everything they would ever do, it brought him pleasure to make them his people. You know what we tend to do? We recognise our sin. We start to beat ourselves up about it. We might even go down the path where we think, God mustn't love me because look at this great wickedness that I've done. Guess what? If you are his child, it pleased the Lord to call you into his family knowing everything you had ever done. Not because he pleased that all of the actions pleased you. He's not huffing and puffing around in heaven, pulling his hair out, saying, I can't believe I called that one into my family. Look what he just did. Rather, it, he says, it pleased me that I made them my own. I want them to come to me, ask for forgiveness. I want to see them grow and to flourish. And from Samuel's perspective, even though he's coming out of that role of being a leader, he says, far be it for me to sin by not continuing to pray for you and to lead you in the right direction. Because you don't just pray for the people and encourage them and instruct them for their good only when you're in a position of leadership. It's like this is just part of what we do as, as the community of God's people. The New Testament keeps talking about it. It's normal as Christians. We instruct one another. We build one another up in the word. And then Samuel comes back to the choice that we make every morning, every moment of our day. Fear the Lord. Turn to him. Serve him with all of your heart. He has done great things for you. Don't turn from him and receive the punishment that you deserve for turning from him. It's funny, every time you read about this in the Bible, you see you're given these two options. One is, is, is close union with God and blessing. The other one is turning from God and cursing. You think, it's a no-brainer. No one would ever choose that one. But doesn't history show us how frequently we do? I've seen it through the nation of Israel, how they forgot the Lord their God, they pursued other idols, other gods. And as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he's talking about all the ways in which they wandered from God, returned to God, wandered from God, he summarizes then in verse 12 by saying, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. He says, these things are written down as an example. This could happen to you and me. So what? Well, whether we admit it or not, 
every single one of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But what do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our understanding that we have turned and rebelled against God? That was the question that Samuel posed to Israel. But it's a question for all of us. It's not just a question for those who have already placed their trust in Jesus. It's also a question for those who are yet to place their trust in Jesus. If you haven't yet turned to place your trust in Jesus, let me remind you of something Samuel has said. He has done great things. Whether we've come to a point where we recognise the extent of our sin, of, of rejecting and rebelling against the God who's given us all the good blessings we have around us, who created us and gives us everything, we have sinned. And just like day one, we deserve to die. But one of the greatest things that God has done, of the many great things, is his perfect son, Jesus Christ, died that death. On behalf of sinful mankind, that if we turn from our sin to trust in him, our sins can be paid for in full. I can say to you in the same extent, as Samuel has said, fear not. No matter what your background is, if you turn from your sin, you're trusting in the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf as being your death for your sin once and for all, none of your sin will be held against you. You will be forgiven. Now you might think, oh, but you don't know what I've done, Steve. I've done some really, really rotten stuff. Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the letters in the New Testament, calls himself the chief of sinners who made it his life mission before he turned to Christ to kill and wipe out the Christian church. But he came to understand your sin can never outweigh God's grace. So there's the challenge. If you haven't yet turned to Jesus, that you can and you can find freedom. You can find forgiveness and you can find life in turning from sin, placing your trust in Christ who has died on your, heart, on your behalf to live for him. But also, if you are already a follower of Jesus, how do you respond to your guilt? Is your default setting to self-loathe, wallow around in pity for a while, presume that God's written you off, doesn't love you anymore? This is the same God as it was we read in this passage. It pleased him to make you his child. Knowing everything that you would do, everything past, present and future, it pleased you to call him to yourself to be his own precious son, co-heirs with Christ. So don't believe for a moment that he doesn't love you if you are his child doesn't mean that he might he won't discipline you but discipline as a loving father who desires you to grow and to flourish 
Maybe in that moment when you're, you're dealing with your guilt, you can take a moment and praise him and thank him that he has died for that very sin that you've just done. Turn to him, he's good. He wants to love you. He wants you to love and serve him and experience all the blessing of being in a close union with him. Don't let your feelings or your circumstances send you on a roller coaster in terms of how much you love God. Because what we see in the Bible and in life, love isn't defined by your feelings or your experiences. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You read it all the time at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. You know how when you get a chance to express patience? When somebody tests your patience. This is how you get to show love by being with someone who tests your patience. And to show kindness to people who may not deserve it because of the way in which they're doing it. Think about your wedding vows. You promise to love them in the good times and the bad times, in sickness and in health, for richer and in poorer. We're called to love him at all times because he is unchanging. I think our best place to finish is the final words of Samuel. Only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all of your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done great things. And the pinnacle expression of that is in your son Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. We thank you that he will be returning and he will call all those who have placed their trust in him to everlasting life. Lord, we, we pray that you would always lead us back to you when we, when we stumble, when we fall that we would never believe into the lie that our sin would somehow put, you, put us outside of your love and your grace. We don't want to take liberty and, and sin just because we have that grace. Uh, Lord, we want to serve you and humbly follow you with all of our heart, walking obediently and enjoying the blessing of doing so. And so work in us to that effect, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.